Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Luke, uh, Luke chapter 17. We have been looking at Luke uh, from Christmas time. We've been building a picture of the person of Jesus Christ from his birth through to his ministry, his miracles, his parables, his teaching, uh, and his relationships with, with his disciples and the Pharisees and the Jewish people. And he said a lot of wonderful things, but we come to something now which is a little more difficult, because Jesus also said some incredibly negative things, some things which we don't like to hear about. Um, And we're going to look at this tonight in terms of the coming of his kingdom, or what we might term the end of the world. Now, my father uh, tells a very amusing story. Uh, of when he was a small boy going to deliver milk to an old neighbor just uh, up the road from from their house. Uh, My grandfather owned the local garage, so lots of deliveries would uh, come to the garage and then people would come uh, to the garage to collect them. However, my father was sent with this milk up to this old man up the road. Um, This man was a a bachelor. He was slightly eccentric, um, and he was a devoted follower of the plain truth which was a school of Bible prophecy uh, begun by a man called Herbert Armstrong. And we now know it as the cult of Armstrongism. But anyway, my my father went up uh, and he got to the house. Now, what you need to know is um, the day this happened was, as far as I'm aware, the the 5th of June, 1967. Uh, That was the day war broke out between Israel and Egypt, what became known as the Six-Day War, essentially. Uh, And as my father opened the door of of the man's cottage, he was standing uh, in the kitchen uh, listening to the radio. And as my father entered, he looked round at him and declared in a loud shout, The end of the world is nigh. At which point my father um, set the bottles down, turned on his heels and ran very quickly back home, um, ripping his clothes and barbed wire fence. He says all he was thinking about was, I hope, it get, I hope I get home before it ends. Now, silly stories like that um, is often how we approach the idea of the end of the world. Hollywood blockbusters come out every year with the prediction of Armageddon, the latest one, I think, being 2012, if I'm not mistaken. And the net result of all this is, of course, that we, we don't tend to take these things very seriously at all. In fact, we're all almost tempted to laugh it off and to react with, in my mind, proper cynicism, um, that it's just the latest load of nonsense that somebody has imagined or come up with. The modern human narrative of human life tells us that, well, life began, we evolved, this evolutionary process will continue until human beings get better and better and better, more scientifically advanced, until we build for ourselves uh, and most, the most wonderful utopian paradise. In other words, uh, there will be no end to this existence. There is only uh, one thing that matters, and that is this progress towards an undefined utopia. And so when you have that kind of mindset, thinking about uh, the end of the world, it's thought about in terms of 
uh, a nuclear holocaust. That was the, the big thing during the Cold War. Or giant asteroids hitting the planet. Remember the movies that came out a while ago. Or indeed the latest one, global econo- ecological disaster. You see, it's seen as anything that stops or prevents the onward march of humanistic progress towards this perfect society that is always just around the corner somewhere. Always promised, but we never get there. The result, of course, is people like uh, David Attenborough this week announced uh, in, a le- in a public lecture that we should start thinking about the population problem uh, that we have on our planet. That their only inf- uh, finite amount of resources and their ever-increasing number of people will cause war, disease, and famine unless we act now to stop it. And his very dangerous solution, more contraception. Stop human beings breeding. And at all costs, stop the Pope and the Catholic Church. They came in for a real hammering in his lecture. Fascinating piece of logic when you begin with evolution. Or the other option is, of course, we need to spend billions of pounds trying to stop our carbon emissions so that human beings can save the planet, can reduce our carbon footprint and change the, and alter the climate by the actions of governments and taxation. I'm a skeptic when it comes to all things global warming. But it seems that everybody has their, their own version of the end of the world. Humanists, uh, ecologists, religious people all over the world have a theory about the end of the world. Um, I think because we're tempted to be so cynical about these things, we are tempted to dismiss the entire idea. We just forget about it. But that would be wrong, a wrong thing for us to do. What I think we need to do is to examine the evidence around the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus did, and speak, did indeed speak about the end of the world, if that's what you want to call it. But he viewed it a lot differently than Hollywood views it, and certainly a lot differently than David Attenborough will view it, or that wonderful uh, series of sound Christian doctrine left behind, if you're familiar with that, Um, that thing that comes out of America. He viewed it a lot different than all those things. For as Luke records for us in chapter 17 of his gospel, Jesus saw things, saw these things in terms of his kingdom. A time when the kingdom would come in its fullest sense, and there would be if you like, an end of this world and a final realization of the next. Indeed, in the Jewish understanding that had developed from the rebuilding of Jerusalem after the exile up until the time of Jesus, the Jews were expecting a new age. They were expecting an age when the Messiah would come and bring his kingdom and the world would be renewed. So when Jesus talks about his kingdom here, it's not really in terms of an end but rather a renewal of the world and his people who will reign over it. But like we have seen before as we've studied Luke, expectations and reality are not always the same. The kingdom would come, but it would come in two stages. And in chapter 17, we find Jesus detailing out for his disciples what this means is, again, he is questioned by the Pharisees regarding the nature of 
this kingdom which he taught about so much. The Pharisees come with the question, we'll see it there in verse 20, about when the kingdom will come. They were fully expecting it to come, but they saw it only as a future event. When they read the the latter chapters of Isaiah in the Old Testament, they saw it as a day of the Lord, an event in the future, when the Messiah would come and his enemies would be overthrown and God's people would be vindicated and this new messianic age would be ushered in with great apocalyptic visions and so on. But as Jesus points out to them, they were looking for an event that they wouldn't see. A a big event where the Messiah would come in power and glory in the future. And in a sense, they were correct. Their problem revolved around their recognition of Jesus as the Messiah. That's what he says to them. The kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation. Nor will people say, here it is or there it is. Because the kingdom of God is within you. Jesus explains to them that the nature of the kingdom for them was not one that they would be able to visibly observe. It wasn't an event that they could point to or point at. Rather, the kingdom of God was amongst you. If you look at your footnote in your church Bible, you will see that's the alternative translation to within you. Or we might even say a better translation altogether might be the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. For where Jesus is, there is the kingdom. Where the king of the kingdom is recognized, there is the kingdom. So as the Pharisees look for signs and events that would mark the kingdom's arrival, they fail to see the most obvious sign that the kingdom has come the very fact that Jesus is there, the Messiah has arrived, and they have not recognized him. They were too busy looking to the future that they could not see the kingdom had arrived right under their noses. The king was there. So in one sense, then, the kingdom has arrived already and is already here. As Jesus has dropped into human life, as he has preached and healed the sick, the new age has arrived. It wasn't accompanied with royal robes or grand apocalyptic signs. So in that sense, it wasn't observable, but that doesn't mean it wasn't a reality. And that's what we've seen as we've been studying the life of Jesus, how the kingdom has appeared with him. The Pharisees, again, highlight their failure to understand what was taking place before their eyes. But from the immediate presence of the kingdom, Jesus now turns to the future as he speaks to his disciples. For the kingdom was not just a present reality, but a future certainty. For as he tells his disciples, there will come a time when they will long to see him, but they will not be able to. And notice that Jesus here gives himself the title, Son of Man. That, of course, refers to a figure described in the Old Testament in Daniel chapter 7. And this person in Daniel chapter 7, would be presented before the the ancient of days, before God, he would be presented with a kingdom. And this kingdom would last forever. And it would never be destroyed. It would stretch over all the world. You see, Jesus again is pointing to the reality that he is this messianic figure. 
this one that the Old Testament promised, this is who he is. And this kingdom will be a little different from what people assumed it would be. It won't be territorial. It won't be nationalistic, as many people had expected. For as the kingdom has arrived with him, as he is there on earth, it is still not fully realized, or it is still not fully recognized. And it will not be fully recognized until the king arrives a second time. This time, he will not come in a manger, and there will be no cross. He will come with glory and with great power. And it's when he comes a second time that all men will be able to recognize, or all men will recognize the kingdom. That's the significance of Jesus' statement about the lightning. When the lightning lights up the sky, everyone who's on the ground can see it for miles around. It's visible not just to a few people, but to everybody. Everyone in the area will see it. So it will be on that day, the day of the Son of Man, the day of his return, everyone will see it. It will be unmistakable. Everyone will know and recognize that day that Jesus is the King and see his authority. Whether they like it or not, he will be known. In the present time, That kingdom is invisible. The spread of the kingdom is invisible. It is not seen with people's eyes, only realized as people's lives are changed. But on the day of the Son of Man, it will be something very visible. And everyone will know that the kingdom has arrived. What was hidden will be made known. Every eye will see him. What Jesus wants his disciples and us to see is that it will be unmistakable. In contrast, says Jesus, to those who will try and deceive people, claiming that the kingdom has come in some way before it's allotted time. Don't be fooled, says Jesus. When the kingdom arrives, you would have to go and look for it. You will know it has arrived. So in one sense, of course, the Pharisees were correct. The kingdom is a future event. But they had failed to realize that the seed of that kingdom had already begun to grow. As Jesus had inaugurated it at his first coming, as he preached good news, as he healed the sick, as the church would go out into the nations, that kingdom would begin and grow. And this is really important for us to understand, this, this idea of the kingdom and its twofold nature. The kingdom is here today, and it's been growing from the time of Jesus. We've been hearing about it in, in Italy growing. Like a mustard seed, as Jesus said in one of his par- parables, which is very, very tiny, but when planted, it becomes a great, big, huge tree. It grows and becomes something far bigger. But it's an invisible reality. As people are brought uh, to recognize the king of the kingdom, they bow before Jesus as Lord and Savior. Jesus instructs us to pray, your kingdom come. As we ask God to allow the kingdom to grow, 
as the church announces to the world the good news of what Jesus has done. The kingdom grows. Where Jesus is recognized, where Jesus is worshipped as king, that is where the kingdom is. It is an internal spiritual reality, and it grows as God brings people into his kingdom through Christ. You see, that kingdom isn't just something in the future. It is a present reality for us. The Holy Spirit has been poured out into our lives. The life of the kingdom that is to come, the kingdom of the future, is offered to us now. The life of the new world, eternal life, is offered to us now. The forgiveness that is promised for the future, judgment, is a reality for us now, if we are in Christ. The church is the community of God on earth now, in this age. We are to participate, says Paul, in the resurrection life now, in this present time. The kingdom is here. But it is not here in its fullest sense. We are still part of a world that is in open rebellion against God. There is still sin and suffering. We still struggle with our own sinfulness. We have sickness, earthquakes, as we have seen this week. We have death and disease. For the complete and final restoration is not yet here. The kingdom has come, but it has not yet fully appeared. It's not here in its fullest sense. We can't have all that is promised in the future, all that is promised in a new heavens and a new earth in the world today. Nor should we promise to people today what is only available when the future kingdom arrives. That causes all sorts of confusion and that causes all sorts of hurt. You see, there are many mistakes that people make when they come to view this twofold understanding of the kingdom, what we call eschatology, the study of the end times. History, uh, in history, it has been argued that by members of the church that there is no future kingdom, that there is no future coming. It's no, it won't happen. Only the present, that's all that matters. And we must bring the justice and the righteousness that is promised in the kingdom. We must bring that today. That, of course, was the argument of old school liberalism. Where the temptation was to try and make a utopian society today. Because there was no future realization of, a, of the kingdom. There was no future new heavens and new earth. And when you deny the future nature of the kingdom, all you can do is try and bring the kingdom today by your own efforts. And so these people turn to politics to try and make a fairer world, build a, a great utopian society where there was no more murder, where there was no more hate, to bring the kingdom of God on earth. But what they failed to see was the twofold nature of the kingdom. It is God who brings the kingdom not the church. God who allows the growth of the kingdom in people's lives and will ultimately restore those lives completely at the great 
resurrection when Christ returns, when the kingdom is come in its fullest sense. And new heavenly bodies and spirits will be united together and God's people will be part of a new heavens and a new earth. For those who say that, or we have, there are all those who say that um, the promises of healing and renewal that God promises for the future at the resurrection, they are available to us here today and now. Only if you have faith, if you have enough faith now, your cancer will be healed. If you have enough faith now, your heart disease will go away. That is the error of some in another spectrum of the church. Trying to have today what is only promised in the complete healing that God will bring when Christ returns. Now, I am not saying, don't get me wrong on this, that God can't work miracles today. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that these things are not guaranteed to anyone. We cannot make promises. And you see, this is why it is so utterly vital that we get this understanding of the kingdom that Jesus talked about correct. That it has come, but not in its fullest sense, but that it will come. It will be complete when Christ comes again. In the present reality, we are made alive in Christ. We have new spiritual life in Christ. That is offered to us. But there are no utopias, there are no perfect worlds that we can develop here and now. And anyone who claims they can, my advice is to stay away from them. And I might add to this that it's very dangerous also, and we have to be very careful when we talk about redeeming cultures or redeeming societies. It is God who redeems cultures and redeems societies. It's not our job. It is he who brings dead people, dead people in trespasses and sins into new life in the kingdom. And as people are brought into the kingdom and people are changed and people's lives turned around, so societies are changed and transformed. But that restoration will not be complete in this age. It will be complete in the age to come, but not in this one. There will still be sin. There will still be hate. There will still be murder. There will still be strife. Sadly, that is true. As long as this present world endures, that is true. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't make the effort as Christians to be salt and light in our society to try and change it. We are called to do that. But we should be aware of false expectations and false notions of being able to change cultures or even nations. Nor is the complete restoration of the kingdom promises available today. It is a future promise that we have. The kingdom will come in its fullest sense when the king arrives back at his second coming on this day of the Son of Man that Jesus speaks of here. And he will come to reign over a new heavens and a new earth. We must hold these two things together not get them confused. But okay, we understand this. The kingdom has come, but has not come in its fullest sense. When, when will it come in its fullest sense? That's the question. Well, according to Jesus, the answer is the future kingdom will come unexpectedly. He doesn't give us any dates. It will come when people don't expect it to come. 
It gives two examples in the, in the passage we've read. Um, that of um, verses 26 to 29, that of Noah, the days of Noah, and the days of Lot. So it will be the same as it was then when the Son of Man appears at his second coming. People will be eating, drinking, getting married. In other words, life will be normal. They will be living ordinary lives, relating to people in the ordinary way. And then the Son of Man will come and judgment will follow. It will be unexpected. As Noah preached to his generation, they did not listen. And the rain rain came and it was too late. Or Lot. In the time of Lot, people were going about their ordinary activities. There was commerce. There was agriculture. There was economies. There was infrastructure. People were People will be, rather, sending text messages, emails, if such a thing still exists. That will be normal, everyday life, and then the end will come. Just like Lot left Sodom and the fire and the sulfur rained down and destroyed them, it was unexpected, it was sudden, it was definitive, it was lasting, it was permanent, and it was real. Sodom is not here today. And what's more, when that day arrives, people's priorities will be seen for what they are. The man who goes down to save his possessions or who runs in from the field to get his possessions will be in great danger. Notice what Jesus says. When when Christ returns, these things won't matter. And like Lot's wife, if you know the story in the Old Testament, if they love these things more than Christ, then that great judgment will catch up with them. Lot's wife was very near being saved. Very near. But she wasn't near enough. And the judgment overtook her. She looked back. She betrayed her true priorities. And of course she ended up judged with Sodom and Gomorrah. Her love was in this place. And she was fleeing um, as she fleed out. And the result was that she was numbered with the judged and not with the saved. The priorities of her heart were shown for what they were. Whoever tries to keep his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will preserve it. If life is only in this world, then it will be lost. But if life is concerned with what is to come, if we give up the desires of this life and concentrate on the next, then it will be preserved. Elsewhere, Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. That is good advice. That's the right priority. Seek first the kingdom, and then what did he say? And all these other things will be added to you as well. But if you get it the wrong way around, well, you know the rest. The kingdom will come unexpectedly, It will take people by surprise. It will bring judgment for those who aren't prepared to let go of this life. And it will come with division. Notice verse 34. People will be, two people will be in one bed. One will be taken and the other will be left. Two people will be working as normal and one will be taken and the other will be left. The idea of being taken here, I think, refers to being taken to be with Jesus. And the rest are left. Judgment. Humanity will be divided in judgment to those who belong to Christ and those who have failed to accept him. 
Those who have faith in Jesus will go to everlasting life. Those who reject God's kindness to them in Christ to everlasting death. That is the reality. And there will be no Bruce Willis to save the day. There will be no human technological invention which can prevent it. It will not be escaped or it will not be put off. It will be definitive and permanent. It will be sudden and lasting. And it will involve every human on the planet. No one will be left out. And notice how the disciples ask a question, which again portrays their utter stupidity and makes us all feel an awful lot better. Their ability to ask irrelevant questions is astounding. Where, Lord, they say, where will this take place? And Jesus answers with the proverb, where there is a dead body there, the vultures will gather. Where the vultures are, there you can be sure the dead body is, says Jesus. And where there are the spiritually dead are, their judgment will fall. Now, I am well aware this is not a popular message. Nobody likes to talk about But these words were spoken by Jesus. Now, let me address another question. Why should you believe this? Why should you believe this is true? How do you know it's not just a, a story told to frighten the children? How do you know it's not just the same as the Hollywood versions or climate change versions or whatever version there's out there? Well, it depends on your attitude to Jesus. There is absolutely no doubt that Jesus said this. Mark in his gospel, Matthew in his gospel records similar things coming out of the mouth of Jesus. This is not made up. Jesus spoke these words. That is a historical fact. And if Jesus is the Messiah whom he claims to be, if he is God in human form, if he is the God who created the universe, the savior of his people, then what he says is correct. What he says is true. He was able to predict his death. He was able to predict his resurrection. He says that he will come again to bring renewal for this world. If Jesus is who he claims to be, then this is real and cannot be ignored. And if this is the case and you are not a Christian tonight, then you need to come into the kingdom. You need to accept God's offer of blessing and forgiveness and you need to receive that kingdom today so that you will escape the judgment that Jesus speaks about when he will come again. Jesus came as a baby in a manger to be a man on a cross, to offer you and to offer everyone forgiveness from our rebellion and sinfulness. That is a free offer. That is open to you if you accept it. When you come, when you acknowledge Jesus as the Lord, the King, the King of your life, as the one who sacrificed, seals your forgiveness. Now, we don't have a date for the second coming. We are never told it. But we know that it will come. It is a promise. And God always keeps his promises. And it will be devastating when it arrives. But in Christ, we have hope. In Christ, we have mercy. We are already made new if we are in the kingdom. And we will know and experience that eternal life when he comes back. 
We will be free from the condemnation that comes. But maybe you are a Christian. What does it mean for you? Well, look with me at chapter uh, 18. And you will find there that Luke follows this passage about the day of the Son of Man with a parable. A parable that Jesus tells his disciples to encourage them to pray and not give up in verse 1. Now, I don't think this is here by accident. This is planned by Luke. And it's here because as Christians, we need to keep persevering. When we don't know the time when Christ will come back, we are left in this life to continue. As it pans out for us with suffering, with persecution, as we long for the day when the Son of Man will come back, come back as we long for justice, we long for this world to be renewed, to be freed from the sin that it so easily entangles. It is really easy for us, if you're a Christian, to give up. Easy to fade away. The struggles of life become too much. Become disappointed. We can get discouraged when people mock and laugh, saying, where is the promise of his coming, as Peter mentions in his second epistle? We need to keep going. We need to be faithful. Notice the way Jesus finishes this parable in verse 8. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? We need to remain faithful. We need to keep going in faith, trusting in the promises of God to us in Christ. We need to be constantly looking back at the gospel, seeking Jesus. And as David was saying this morning in his sermon, we must have faith. What is faith? The assurance of things hoped for. Do you hope for justice in a new heavens and a new earth? It's belief in things not seen. You don't see this new world, but do you believe in Christ and the promises he has given? Will you remain faithful? And indeed, one of the ways we exercise this faith is in prayer. Think about it. You don't see God, yet you know he's there. Why else would you pray? You can't see him work out his providence, only experience it as it unfolds in your life. Prayer is one of the primary ways we exercise our faith. One of the ways we remain faithful even when we don't see with our eyes. Only by faith. We walk by faith and not by sight. Will we remain faithful in prayer and in trust? Trust in God, knowing that he will vindicate his people. He will come soon. That's the parable says. And he will see that his people have justice when Christ returns. You know what the last, the very last prayer of the Bible is? Revelation chapter 22, verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. And then the prayer. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Is that your prayer too? Let's pray. Come, Lord Jesus. Come soon. Father, we thank you that 
you have promised us that you will usher in a new heavens and a new earth, that you have promised us a world free from sickness and sorrow and pain and suffering. You have promised us justice for your people, vindication for yourself. We thank you that the present reality of your spirit is still with us, that you are present with us now, even when the full realization of your kingdom is not yet here. We thank you that as Christ comes, as come, he has bought us forgiveness. He has provided us with new life. He has provided us with freedom from condemnation. Help us, Lord, to remain faithful in this time as we wait for your your son to return, to usher in a new kingdom. Help us, Lord, to be faithful in prayer, to be as that widow in that parable, ever before your throne, knowing and trusting, Lord, that you will come soon. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Okay, we're going to finish by singing um, a song.